Irish Nation, since the 2017 college football season, most weekends, not all, as a Notre Dame fan, have been enjoyable and encouraging. We haven't broken through for a national championship, but we've had quite a run of success that we haven't seen since the Lou Holtz era. 10-plus wins and always beating the opponents we should became baked into our baseline expectations. Unfortunately, this was not the type of weekend we've become accustomed to with a stunning upset loss to Marshall. We don't want to overreact to one game, but boy, if ever there were a game to overreact to, this was it. We're going to cover our thoughts on this game more in a bit and what it means for our season, the program, and Freeman, but needless to say, our initial reaction was quite a gut punch. Now, before we dive into the show, we need to call out that this loss came at an awkward time logistically for us. Brett's been tied up this weekend with personal obligations, so we actually had to record the last two segments in advance. And those two segments are our preview of the Cal game and also a deep dive on SP Plus where we discuss what it is, how it's useful, and how it actually provides clear thresholds for teams to be considered playoff and championship contenders. As you can imagine, some of our comments in the Cal preview obviously do not hold anymore given the results of the Marshall game. At the time of recording, we expected Notre Dame to dominate in the trenches on both sides of the ball. That could definitely still happen, but that expectation looks less likely now. Additionally, we both picked fairly comfortable wins for the Cal game. At the time of recording, SP Plus implied the Irish would be about 22-point favorites, and ESPN FBI said that we had about a 94% chance of winning. SP Plus and ESPN FBI actually didn't shift quite as dramatically as you'd expect uh, from the Marshall game. They now SP Plus now implies a 20-point uh, that we're 20-point favorites, and FBI actually says that we have a, a 91% chance of winning. But the current Vegas line is much tighter at 10 and a half. Up. 10.5 points. And to me, that actually feels more correct, especially if Buckner's out. So if I had to give an updated prediction for Notre Dame Cal, I would shift my prediction to 24-15. So Notre Dame wins, but doesn't cover. Now, all of our analysis on Cal's roster and their strengths and weaknesses, that all still does hold, as does our SP Plus segment. Aside from the Cal preview, I'm also going to be running solo on the Marshall recap. Many coaches say certain games are so bad that you just have to take a couple quick takeaways and move on from it as quickly as possible. Otherwise, you risk demoralizing the team and impacting their confidence moving forward. We're going to take that mindset here, and we're not going to go into excruciating detail on the loss, but we will give the key takeaways and implications moving forward. Now, with that, I'm going to jump into our recap on the Marshall game. You're an All-American and our captain. Act like it. I believe I am. In Notre Dame and Marcus Freeman's career home opener, the Irish dropped a stunning upset loss to Marshall 26-21. to It's fair to say that the Marcus Freeman honeymoon is officially over. This game was well beyond any sort of new head coach growing pain and is easily a major red flag in the Freeman era. For context, heading into this weekend, ESPN FPI gave us an 89% chance of winning, and the Vegas line said that we were 20-point favorites. Needless to say, this was a massive upset. The expectation was that Marshall was a firmly middle-of-the-pack FBS team and comparable to about a below-average Power 5 team. So they're not a total cupcake, but not anywhere near the level of competing against what we thought was a top-10 Notre Dame team. Perhaps Marshall is better than expected, and their mass inflow of transfers worked as well as possible. Even so, the talent gap between Notre Dame and Marshall is very large, with the Irish ranking 10th in the 24-7 composite and Marshall at 96. Let's make no mistake here. Your eyes match the data. Notre Dame was flat out beat in this game. Marshall's post-game win expectancy was 98%, meaning if you replayed this game 100 times, 
Marshall would have won it 98 times. So they didn't win with a bunch of fluky plays and dumb luck. They just straight up outplayed us. There are quite a few higher level implications to discuss, but we're going to cover how Notre Dame actually lost this game first. Focusing more on the offense, since that was the side of the ball that lost the game, and then glossing over the defense a little bit more quickly since they, they showed up better relative to the offense. Now, starting with the offense, the Irish actually generated a strong success rate of 48%, which would have been one of the better marks in college football if sustained over an entire season. As a reminder, a successful play on offense is a play that generates 50, or that gains 50% of yards to go on a first down, 70% to go on a second down, and then converts on third or fourth down. We started out slow with a low success rate of 37% in the first quarter, but picked it up quite a bit after that. So, Overall, stringing together successful plays was not really the issue here. The issue was a lack of big chunk explosive plays and turning the ball over. Notre Dame's explosiveness score, this tells you how many big plays you're generating essentially, was a mere 0.91. For context, 1.3 is an excellent score. 1.0 is very bad. 0.91 is horrible and will be one of the worst marks in the country. If your explosiveness score is very low, Basically, you need to rely on a very high success rate, and you can't allow the defense to generate a bunch of disruptive plays. So we had a good success rate, but given how low our explosiveness rating was, it was not nearly high enough to overcome that lack of big chunk plays. On the turnover front, we had three critical interceptions, including a pick six that essentially sealed the game, and we didn't generate any turnovers of our own on the defensive side of the ball. Marshall's havoc rate which is the percentage of plays that are fumbles, interceptions, sacks, batted passes, etc. It was not particularly high at 12%, but the havoc that they did generate had a major impact. So in sum, the offense faltered because of an inability to pick up big yards on any given play, and we also had the critical interceptions. Looking into this a little bit more, very few aspects of the offense were effective on Saturday. Primarily just Tyler Buckner's legs, which generated 44 yards. Not a huge impact, but at times... He did have some successful plays. And Michael Mayer, who had 103 yards receiving and a touchdown. The Irish run game, in particular, really struggled with uh, the offensive line unable to generate any push. The line yards per rush, this is a metric that we talk about a lot. Essentially, how many rushing yards are attributable to the offensive line was a lowly 2.7, which would be one of the worst marks in the country. This lack of push was not overcome by a strong performance by any of our backs either with no running back grading out with a pro football focused run score higher than 60 and that a score below a 60 is below a college starter level essentially means you're you're easily replaceable on the passing game front buckner and pine both scored extremely low pro football focus grades uh on the passing front 39.2 and 27.6 respectively these grades are so low that it implies their performance was very actively hurting the team um, and we also need to call it that these grades are not opponent-adjusted. So it's using Marshall as the baseline. So with Marshall, what we consider to be a fairly average team, as the baseline, they were still deemed to perform very poorly. Now, there were a few areas, as we mentioned, that, that uh, did a bit better. The tight ends performed well. Styles was okay. He was at 67. But their performance as a receiver was um, was not quite strong enough to overcome the deficiencies at QB. Unfortunately, it's not clear if any help or major improvement is coming on the offensive side of the ball. While the offensive line, we believe it has the pieces to improve over the course of the year. It's certainly not where we wanted it to be at this point, um, but it's not there yet. Hopefully it gets there. We also have lack of depth at wide receiver. That's not changing 
anytime soon. And we may now have a quarterback crisis. Buckner exited the game late with a potential shoulder injury, didn't return. We haven't heard anything definitive yet. Early early rumors are that it could be a significant injury with major time missed. Now, look, Buckner didn't play well, but as we mentioned above Pine, based on his grades, and, I mean, honestly, this just matches up with what I was seeing too, played even worse when he took over and lacks the physical upside of Buckner. Pine, he had a, I'd say, a notable performance against Wisconsin last year, but every other time I've seen him since then, he has really, frankly, just not looked that great particularly in the spring game um, this past year. Just I haven't been impressed with him. Maybe he'll, if he's forced into time, maybe he'll he'll prove me wrong and, and he'll play better, but it doesn't seem like he's the answer. If Buckner misses major time, we miss the possibility of him developing into a good QB over the course of the season. His early returns have been mixed, but it's worth remembering he's only started two games now since high school. He's 19 years old. You have to remember Jimmy Clausen and Brady Quinn, they had difficult first years, and, and they developed into great college quarterbacks. So, I mean, to summarize the situation on the offensive side of the ball, it's looking potentially dire, and we're not confident that we're going to be able to prove. Maybe maybe the offensive line does, but it seems like it could be a pretty tough situation this year on that side of the ball. Shifting to the defense, they held up better, only allowed 19 points if you remove the pick six near the end of the game, but similar to the op- Similar to the Ohio State game, they did wear down as the game progressed, and we allowed a critical 94-yard touchdown drive in the fourth quarter. Best performers were Kraus. He had an elite pro football focus grade of 90.4. That's really high. That's first-round NFL draft pick level. And then DJ Brown and Tariq Bracey had strong starter-level grades of 72 each. Our thought is perhaps because the offense has been struggling to stay on the field, we've been putting a ton of pressure on the defense, and as we get late into the game, they tire out, particularly when it comes to the run defense. Looking at the advanced stats, Notre Dame actually allowed a high success rate of 49%, but we've really limited Marshall's explosiveness, keeping it to a score of 0.87. That's actually lower than Notre Dame's, extremely low. Um, however, we only generated a havoc rate of 12.7%, and as we mentioned, we didn't force any tur- turnovers. Our thoughts are the takeaways on the defense from the Ohio State game generally hold true in this game. This is a defense that's really effective at limiting big plays, but we don't generate a ton of havoc or turnovers. In fact, we're only one of eight teams this year that hasn't forced a turnover yet. But the lack of big plays, our ability to limit those big plays so dramatically, is overcoming some of this lack of disruption. So overall, while the defensive line in particular has not been quite as effective as we anticipated, especially late in the game in the run game, Generally, the defense is who we thought they would be, but maybe they're not at that elite level that we were hoping for. They're certainly not the reason that we're losing games. We think they're just being put in a lot of tough spots, and they just get worn out by the end of the game. Taking a step back, big picture, this is a tough game to swallow. We had our share of poor performances against much weaker teams over the years. Toledo last year comes to mind, Ball State in 2018, but we never actually dropped these types of games since 2017. As much flack as Kelly gets from our fan base, he was remarkably consistent since his resurgence with the games that we should win, winning 42 straight games over unranked opponents. When Kelly left, we talked about what we were losing, and that's a near-guaranteed high level of success, maybe not cha- truly championship level, but 10-plus wins with a shot at making the playoff most years. Freeman represents a much different equation altogether, and that's high-risk, high-reward. And we've seen some of the possibilities at raising our ceiling with some of his early recruiting success and his public charisma. He's a very likable guy, someone you want to root for. People seem to rally around him. Recruits love him. But we did flag that as a first-time head coach, 
there was a risk that we could lose some of that consistency we had with Kelly and struggle through some growing pains. This game, unfortunately, falls well beyond a growing pain and is flashing red sirens at the risk side of the coin. Look, you don't want to overreact to one game. It's very possible this is an outlier and Freeman is able to rally the team to a strong rest of the season. A common football saying is that you're never as good or as bad as you look in any one game. Even still, following this loss, it's hard not to miss the comfort of the high base-level performance guaranteed under Kelly. When we did hit rougher patches under Kelly, he often demonstrated an ability to right the ship, no doubt due in large part to his wealth of experience. He also showed an ability to maximize his coaching staffs, with many of his former assistants struggling to find the same success they had under him after leaving. You have to believe this could be due to a really well-structured organization led by an experienced CEO coach that optimizes what you get out of assistance and also limits the impact of their shortcomings. Freeman's staff as a whole is quite young and inexperienced with a few exceptions like Heatston and Golden. The staff here could be missing red flags that a more experienced staff would see. We previously did a segment on success rates of new coaches, and our big finding was that the hit rate is quite low and that any new hire is always risky. The rate is much higher for coaches stepping into good situations, but even in those instances, there is still a high failure rate. Look, Freeman walked into about as favorable a situation as you could hope for here, so hopefully hopefully he's able to move past this, rally the team, and hopefully this game is just a blemish in a successful tenure. As far as expectations go for the rest of the year, we have to acknowledge that anything is on the table at this point including a strong performance the rest of the year. Freeman said he will evaluate every aspect of the program. Brett and I talked about this a little bit. We found it a little bit concerning because saying you need to evaluate every aspect suggests that you may not actually have any idea what the problem is, or you may not be considering that it could just be a one-off. Maybe maybe you don't need to change a whole lot. Maybe this truly was a fluky occurrence. Regardless... Well, we thought the Ohio State game raised the floor for the season. This game significantly counteracted that. A seven or eight win season feels much more likely now. Six or less actually feels within the realm of possibilities. It's hard to imagine our offense is going to be able to do a whole lot against Clemson's elite defense. And that road game against USC now looks pretty daunting. With an anemic offense that couldn't do much against Marshall and that may now have a quarterback crisis, it's not hard to imagine us replicating similar performances like this throughout the rest of the season. The key here is going to be quickly moving on from this performance and not allowing it to damage the team's confidence. Notre Dame still has more talent across the board than the vast majority of teams they play, and that has to give us some hope. We had a number of players projected as potential first-round picks heading into this season. How Freeman gets the team to respond next week against Cal, for me, that's going to be very telling. I want Rudy to dress in my place, Coach. He deserves it. The Cal Berkeley Golden Bears are coming to Notre Dame in a week three tilt, as Mike mentioned in the preview. Um, I've got a travel conflict this weekend, so we're actually pre-recording the Cal preview before the Marshall game, so we won't know how Notre Dame did against Marshall or Cal against UNLV, uh, both on outcome of the game, any injuries, and anything else that might impact this. Just going off of uh, one week of data um, on both of these teams, so... Mike, starting things off with their offense, a lot of new faces leading that side of the ball. What should we expect from Cal as they've got quite a few new players stepping into elevated roles? 
that's that's really the big question is can their offense take a step forward with new leaders everywhere? So you got to start with the quarterback, and so that's Jack Plummer, not Jake Plummer, I'm an NFL QB, but Jack Plummer from Purdue, which Notre Dame fans may remember from when we last played Purdue. He was the quarterback there. Couldn't win the job this year, so then he transferred to Cal. Obviously, if you're in a situation where you have to transfer programs, that doesn't necessarily imp- that doesn't really imply that he's probably an elite quarterback now, but he is a quarterback with some experience. And moving on to some of the other skill positions, their number two running back more and their number two wide receiver Hunter, they were solid last year, but not the lead guys. The question is, can they take on a much heavier workload and carry a team? Can they be productive? Can they take that step and and carry the offense to the next level? Yeah, and it's interesting. This program is as much about who they lose as um, who they get back. You know, their uh, starting running back a year ago, Chris Brooks, Notre Dame will actually play him this year. But wearing a BYU uniform, he was their leading rusher, arguably their um, best player. And, um, you know, at quarterback, they graduated Chase Garbers, who felt like was leading this Cal Bears offense for 10 years. I, I get it wasn't that long. And so, you know, as, as you mentioned, there's a lot of guys stepping up. Damian Moore, he had a pro football focus grade of 73, so... Pretty solid starter. He ran for 515 yards, had six uh, six touchdowns, was pretty elusive, you know, limited action. Had 18 broken tackles last year. So definitely something to work with. It's just a big question um, if they can now elevate, right? If that guy who had 515 yards last year can now be the every down back. And it's an even bigger question in the passing game. They don't have a single guy coming back who had more than one touchdown. They only have one guy coming back. You mentioned him, Jeremiah Hunter, who had more than 10 catches. So really just no returning production in the passing game. And it was an offense that struggled. They were 77th in SP plus a year ago. They ranked 72nd as an offense, according to Pro Football Focus. So not a great offense with a lot of turnover. And I think you hit the nail on the head. It, it seems unlikely that this group of leaders is really going to elevate them beyond where they were last year's in offense, which was already mediocre at best. Definitely. It looks like we're on the same page here. So I think our next question is talking about how it's going to be tough for their offense to really push forward. We're kind of moving on to where, where should Notre Dame dominate this game we kind of already hinted at it a little bit it sounds like the offense is is the weaker side of the ball for them especially with all this change brett what do you think in terms of where we should really be able to take advantage of of some of their weaknesses yeah it's it's gonna be in the trenches and i could argue either side of it i'm I'm gonna take the defensive line they're replacing all four starters so kind of a recurring theme across this roster um, they're really just bringing back guys who were in a backup role a year ago. I think this is probably the weakest position group coming back. In fact, I think they're only bringing back one edge rusher who had any snaps whatsoever. Um, and there's only one guy back on their defensive line that had a pro football focus grade above a 62. And again, if you're in the 60s, you're kind of a average college football starter. If you're in the low 60s, it's starting to get pretty bad. So even in limited snaps, they didn't have anyone that really you'll look to and say, okay, that guy's going to come in and you know dominate a game or disrupt or create havoc. So I think our offensive line, you know, had a really tough matchup in Week One against Ohio State. Has taken quite a bit of heat. It's you know a little 
uncertain on how um, Jared Patterson's health is looking and, and what that means for this unit. This is about as favorable as a matchup as we'll see all year for our offensive line going up against an opponent's defensive line. So what I'm really looking for in this game is the line yards per rush. Like we, we should just be moving them off the ball. We should be dominating in the run game, controlling the line of scrimmage. Um, Tyler Buckner should not be needing to, you know, grip and rip it and let it loose in this game. That this should be a very favorable matchup for our offensive line. And it's one that I'm going to be really focused on. Definitely. And on Patterson, as of today, while we're recording this, Freeman said that he expects Patterson to be back for the Marshall game. Assuming nothing happens in the next 48 hours, that's about how far out we are now from, from game time. A little bit, a little bit less than that at this point. But assuming that that happens and he's a full go for the Marshall game, I'm with you. I think hopefully that means we can get the offensive line rotation that we want out there. They can build some cohesiveness and get some reps in by the time they're, they're playing Cal. We're looking like a much more functional, well-paused machine and we can, and we can bully our way over the Cal defensive line. And it's interesting because their defensive line, like the Cal's defense is, I would say, the stronger side of the ball as opposed to the offense. But the defensive line is, the, it does seem like that is probably their weakest position group on the team. I'm going to talk about another position group on the other side of the ball, also in the trenches, and that's the offensive line. So their offensive line last year was quite bad. And then now they also needed to replace three starters. So they actually had to go to the portal for the line. So they brought in a transfer from Arizona State, Spencer Lavelle to play tackle, part-time starter. He should, there should be a massive improvement there in the pass game. He had an elite grade, but really struggled in the run game. But overall, this group, the area where they really struggle is the run game. And I think our defensive line, we have a lot of depth. We have a lot of talent. It wasn't necessarily so obvious against Ohio State, but again, we were playing against potentially an elite offensive line that game. So it's a little, a little challenging to, to tell exactly where where our unit is at. But I think overall, compared to the Cal offensive line, I think our ends and I think our tackles should be able to cause some disruption. And then... Yeah, it feels like a bad combination for their offense, by the way. If you said that they were good in run blocking, but bad in pass blocking, I'd say, well, okay, Damian Moore, you know, the, the number two running back last year is now moving into the starting role. If he had a good offensive line to run behind, he'd probably be able to get some yardage right but there's a reason why chris brooks left to byu it is not fun being a cal bear running back and then in the passing game if they still had chase garbers or were bringing back more production a wide receiver you'd say okay well their offensive line actually holds up pretty well in pass protection so if they hold up pretty well and they have good production out wide maybe they can win this game in, in the passing game well that's not the case because as we just mentioned they're bringing no one back at wide receiver with really, you know, any meaningful production behind Jeremiah Hunter and even that was pretty limited. So the offensive line holding back the running game, the receivers holding back the passing game, um it could be a really tough year in Berkeley. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking our defensive line gets back on track with this game. They finally are flashing the potential and talent that we were expecting to show up. Again, Ohio State tough opponent. You're going up against elite players there. Even if you're a really good player, it's going to be a lot tougher to just consistently show how impact of a player you are. So I do think it seems like our, our common theme here is that we should, Notre Dame should dominate in the trenches, hopefully on both sides of the ball. If we don't, then I think that raises some red flags for, for either position group. Moving on to the next question, kind of like more of a, a big picture here, is how do you – I guess what is the scenario 
where Cal could actually keep this game close and, and get Notre Dame sweating a little bit. Yeah, so this game becomes a blowout if Notre Dame's offensive line just completely blows Cal off the ball, right? So that that's the place for Notre Dame to dominate. The place for Cal to keep this close, look, they're not going to score 30 points against Notre Dame's defense. Like, I, I just don't see that happening in almost any scenario. And so the way for them to keep this game close is for their defense to have a big day. And that's going to be from their linebacking core and their secondary. Um, their linebacker is going to have to provide a lot of support to their D-line. They bring back 76% of the snaps from last year. Um, Femi Oladejo and Mo Iosefa, apologies if I got those wrong, they are both back. Um, they were some of the leading tacklers last year, although graded out in the 50s. So not what you want out of linebackers, but they do bring back experience. And then they bring in Jackson Simon from Washington, also out of the transfer portal. Um, he's almost certainly going to be one of their best defenders day one. Um, had 77 tackles a year ago for, for the Washington Huskies. So a good Pac-12 running back, uh, linebacker bringing in real production. And then in the secondary, um, they bring back two, uh, starters, Scott and Hearns, um, Daniel Scott at safety, arguably the best player on this team now that Chris Brooks is is at BYU that the transfer running back um he had a pro football focus grade of 82 a year ago um and only gave up a QB rating of 62 so pretty darn good safety so the the to me the path for them staying close is the secondary really making Notre Dame one dimensional and not letting our pass game get in going and then their linebackers just really stepping up and and trying to hang on and and make this a low scoring game yeah, I agree with you there. I don't think their offense, I would be very surprised if they were able to do really anything against our defense. There's just, there's just not any pieces on that side of the ball that suggest that they would be able to do so. I agree. I think the way that they keep it close is if, if our offense is kind of sputtering a little bit, say if our offensive line, I know the deep, we're saying the defensive line is probably their weakest position group, but if for some reason our offensive line is having a bad game, but they're still looking a little shaky and we're not getting pushed, you could see if we can't generate a running game that starts putting more pressure on Buckner and we have to rely on, on that and, uh, our, our bad receiver depth. You could see if, if that's the case, maybe we struggle putting up some points and we still win, but it'll be a little bit closer than, than, than we would expect. I'd say that seems unlikely. I, I would be very surprised if our offensive line isn't, isn't able to be effective against them. But in my mind, that's, that's the path to, uh, a close game against Cal. So with that, let's talk about score predictions. Um, we don't know the Las Vegas spread because we're recording this before the spreads are out, which happens after the next week's game. SP Plus implies Notre Dame should be about a 22-point favorite at home. And ESPN's FPI win predictor has Notre Dame winning this 94% of the time. So Notre Dame heavy favorites, about three score favorites, similar to what we're seeing in the Marshall game. So with that, Mike, what's your score prediction? Yeah, so I think we're going to be able to run on them. I think that's going to open things up for Buckner. I think he's going to he's going to have a nice day with some QB runs. He's going to have some nice throws. And then our defense, we know our defense is good. I think our defense is going to shut down a bad offense. So, I'm predicting I'm predicting a score here. Let's say give me 37 to I'm going to go with the SP plus here. I'm going to go 37 15. So, 22 point win. All right, so not take... Okay, if you have to bet, does Notre Dame cover? Okay, actually, that's a good point. Give me... I'm going to I'm gonna raise it one point. 38... 38-15. 38. All right, no, Notre Dame... 15. There you go. <laughs> getting, getting aggressive. So 
I went back historically. It's interesting. We haven't mentioned it. Justin Wilcox is, is the coach of the Cal Golden Bears. He came in in 2017 and in his kind of first full season, second season as a coach in 2018, they had the 13th best defense, um, according to SB plus. The problem is they were 118th in offense that year. And since then, they haven't had either offense or defense be in the top 45. And over that same period of time, Notre Dame hasn't had an offense or defense outside the top 30. So I have no doubt Notre Dame will comfortably win this game. Um, I feel very, very confident Freeman will have the guys locked in. But if you said that the opposing team's best strength is their secondary, so... And their weakness is their defensive line, which means we will be in a very run-heavy mode. And Cal's one path to winning this game is probably ball control. Like, I don't see them throwing the ball around the field and, you know, really getting any tempo going. This feels like it could be a slow um, kind of burn offense game. And that makes it harder to run up the score just because you have fewer possessions. So I think Notre Dame dominates this. I just think it's a little bit lower scoring. And so I've got it something like 24 to 7, low scoring, kind of a boring game, never in doubt. Notre Dame's up something, you know, 14 nothing in the first half. Um, but I've got Notre Dame not covering this one. First time all year I'm betting against the Irish, against the spread. Um, and something like 24 17, so below the cover, but very comfortable, very dominant win. Notre Dame fans walk away feeling really good going into the UNC game. Okay, diving into our next segment, we're going to discuss SB+. We're going to talk about what it is, and we're going to talk about the takeaways and implications for top college football teams. Basically, how it can help you understand how close you really are to breaking through, how close you really are to actually competing for a national championship. So SB+, it's a predictive analytics system. It's very similar to what Las Vegas uses. What it does is it predicts how a team would do against an average team on a neutral field. Now, how do they do that? So essentially you're measuring the efficiency of a team's offense and defense. The key metrics they look at, these are metrics that we talk about all the time on the show. That's success rate, expected points per play, havoc rate, explosiveness. Again, these are these are metrics that we continually talk about every week. It's what we use to help guide our opinion about how Notre Dame is doing in certain areas, where our weaknesses are, etc. Another key point with this system is turnovers. And so it turns out turnovers are actually very highly uncorrelated with how good a football team is. The one, however, the one variable that can actually predict turnovers is the sack rate. So essentially if you're sacking the QB a lot, you'll force a lot of bad throws and then you're more likely to get strip sack fumbles, interceptions, etc. But otherwise, statistically speaking, turnovers are luck. So if you have a high sack rate, and you're likely to have a high turnover rate. That's not necessarily the case. Whereas like if you have a lot of turnovers and a very low sack rate, 
that kind of implies that those turnovers are a little bit more dumb luck. So that's something I think a lot of fans would probably find surprising. But if you look at a lot of like surprising upsets, a lot of times the turnover margin is actually quite large. And it doesn't necessarily, it may look like a team did a lot better than you would think. And maybe that team is better than what you would think. But what actually happened is they got a little bit lucky with the other team potentially just having a sloppy game or just weird things happening with, with fumbles or turnovers. And then the two other things that SP Plus adjusts for that's a little bit, well, one subjective, one's more quantitative. The quantitative one is tempo of a game. So they'll try to adjust if, you know, you're Navy and you're really slowing the game down or if you're, you know, running the air raid um, or, you know, Lincoln Riley super up tempo. They'll adjust for tempo to try to make it more of a, you know, per play basis. What does it look like in an average game? What does it look like in an average tempo? Um, so they might adjust someone up or down based on that. And then the hardest part of the equation is opponent adjustment, strength of schedule. So clearly you're going to look less efficient if you play Georgia than if you do if you play Georgia Southern or Alabama than if you play South Alabama. But how much harder is that, right? So they're using a lot of data to compare, you know, common opponents, um, interconference games, out of conference games to try to benchmark all 130, um, FBS teams. And then what that ultimately leads to is this tool is ultimately meant to be used to predict point spreads. So if Notre Dame right now has a SP plus score of 19.6 and Cal has an SP plus score of minus It's actually read about zero. So that means that on a neutral field, Notre Dame would be about a 19 to 20 point favorite, 19.6 less zero. So Notre Dame against an average team, Cal is an average team according to SP plus, would be 19 and a half point favorites. Cal against another average team would be a zero point favorite or underdog. And then from there, you got to make adjustments. You know, usually home field advantage is about three or four points. So that's how earlier in the show we said Notre Dame's a 22-point favorite according to SP+. It's taking the roughly 19-point differential between those two teams, adjusting it up to 22 because Notre Dame's the home team. Definitely. And we were talking about this all ties into how good a team is. If you're a team that is going to have a higher spread against an average team— that means just if you translate that to probabilities, it means you're going to have a higher chance of winning certain games. If you have an even spread, that game's going to be basically a toss-up. If you're a 40-point underdog, your odds of winning are probably less than 1%. So all this thing, all this data, all these advanced stats essentially kind of help you help guide what a team's chances are of actually breaking through and actually winning a game. So what we did, that's a, that's a little just overview of what SP Plus is and what it's used for. So we took a, a deeper dive into it and applied it to the college football playoff to analyze who is actually a contender. So where are teams that are actually making the college football playoff? Where are they typically ranking in SP Plus? Where are they actually rating? Because you, you have a rank. One other key point that we should mention is in the SP Plus, it's a rating-based system, but you also have a rank. So for each team, as Brett mentioned, you have a certain rating that tells you how you are versus like an average team. But then aside from that, you also, you're also ranked too. So you could be, you could have a team that has, that's ranked number one and then a team that's ranked number two, but the spread between them could actually be quite large. So while the ranking is only one spot apart, the SP plus rating score could essentially, there could be a, a difference of 10, 15 points. So it gives it's you also one. really important that the ranking is predictive. So whenever we talk about SP plus rankings, it's not a resume. It's not saying, 
you are the 10th best team this year for results on the field. It's saying if we had to stack you up in a game tomorrow, you would be the 10th best team for whoever is likely to win tomorrow against any random opponent. And so it's predictive, not backwards looking when we're talking about rankings, which is really different than how you think about the AP poll or the coaches poll or the college football playoff ranking. It's a really different mindset to be looking at that of like, just what's our view of this team going forward in a hypothetical game, no matter what opponent we put them up against, not who do we think is going to finish, you know, eight and four versus 10 and two. Well, that's predicated on who are you playing? Um, so always view this as predictive, not resume. Definitely. It kind of gives you an insight, opponent agnostic, how good it's expected this team to be going forward in, in a nutshell. So if you're ranked really highly in SP plus, it means you're probably a pretty legitimate team. If you're right, if you could, you could have a good, I mean, this happens all the time. You could have a really good record, but if you haven't played anyone, you would probably have a low rating in the SP plus. And then if you played an elite team, that's where you'd actually get throttled. So it really is like a good metric for trying to determine where exactly a team stacks up, especially before, before some of these matchups happen. So as I was saying, we, we kind of took a look at that to see where do you really need to be within SP plus to make the college football playoff? And then where do you also need to be in order to win college football playoff games? So the college football playoff started in 2014, the SP plus system, it changed its preseason rating method starting in 2015. So for the purposes of this, we just took a look at 2015 forward. And for the teams that made the college football playoff, as of the preseason, the average team was about a seven point underdog versus the number one team this year. There are only three teams within that were within seven points of Alabama, the number one particular team per SP plus. So if you just took that face value in an average year, basically the four teams, including Alabama, that um, were either number one or were within seven points of number one, um, those those would be the teams that would make the playoff in an average year. So it just kind of gives you, on average, it kind of tells you generally where you need to be to just even make the playoff. Yeah, and so if you look at all 28 teams, 24 of them were within 12 points. So the average was seven. And the vast majority of them, if you want to say the two standard deviation or the, you know, the normal bell curve, um, two standard deviation was 12 points. So this year, there's only seven teams that started off the year within 12 points of Alabama, the number one team in SP plus's preseason efficiency metric. So just to make the playoff, you're really talking probably about four teams that have a very strong chance. And it's kind of seven total. Um, and then if you double click on that, who can actually go to the college football playoff game, uh, playoffs and win a semifinal game? That's where it even gets more narrow. 11 of the 14 teams that have won a college football playoff game started the season within six points of the number one team. This year, those teams are Bama, Georgia, and Ohio State. No one else. No one else is within six points. So statistically, 75% of the time, the team that wins a college football playoff game is going to be Bama, Georgia, Ohio State. That's a pretty strong correlation. That is a very strong line in the sand that says those three are the contenders, and then there's everyone else. And by the way, you know, the teams that are outside of that range and still make the college football playoff, you know, we mentioned there's kind of four teams that started off the year as, you know, two score underdogs according to SP plus versus the number one team. Well, two of those exceptions last year were Michigan and Cincy and they got blown out of the water. 
Um, in prior years, that included Notre Dame. In another year, that included Michigan State. Um, those are teams that got blown out. So when we look at all these blowouts in the college football playoff, it's not that these teams, you know, maybe don't deserve it or that, um, you know, they, they choked or they can't win in the big game. It's really just that there's a tier, a very, very clear top tier in college football playoff every year. This year, it's three or four teams. And outside of that, everyone else, they might make the playoffs just because someone has to be the fourth team or someone has to be the third team. Um, but statistically, even if you make the playoff, you're not a contender unless if you're starting the year off sort of within a touchdown of the SP plus point spread. And that's a pretty small group. Yeah. And then if you actually want to win a playoff game, you have to be about a four point underdog. So the spread tightens as, as you move up in terms of uh, actually winning games. And as Brett, you mentioned there are outliers. A lot of the outliers, you mentioned, um, Michigan and Cincy. They get in, they get throttled. There are a couple, there are a couple examples of teams that have outperformed their SP plus rating and actually had considerable jumps. And so two of those are 2017 Georgia and then 2019 LSU. Although I will have to point out that 2019 LSU, they started out at 25.8 and then they jumped all the way up to 33.1. So very, very large jump, but they were a preseason top five team before they even made that jump. And then we were talking about this actually before the show. Preseason top five, by the way, in the SP plus. In the SP plus, in the SP plus. Yeah. And that year was a bit of a weird year because the top two teams were pretty high preseason SP plus, and then there was a very big gap. So LSU actually had a pretty big gap between the number one team that year. It's just there, it's just that was the case for everybody. But then they were one of the few teams that was able to actually really surge and surprise. And then of course they they won the uh, the college football playoff that year. But that was a weird. I mean, that was I think just watching that season, that was a very unique circumstance. Joe Burrow, who was a transfer, he came in, and I don't think he was on anyone's radar as elevating his game to the extent that he did this is a guy who the year before had a pretty solid year at lsu but was kind of like a middling four-star qb before that and then he surged to to the point to where he was one of the greatest college football quarterbacks of all time so you really you really need some dramatic stuff to happen typically in order to make these jumps outside of the preseason yeah we we looked at it another way too so we started off this segment talking about the preseason sb plus you can also look at the season and SP plus and it, and it holds the same way, right? So we said to make the college football playoff, there's about a seven point gap versus the number one team in the preseason. Well, at the end of the year, that shrunk a little bit to a five point gap. And for teams that win in the college football playoff, we said four point underdogs at the start of the year. By the end of the year, they're still four point underdogs, right? So there's movement within this, right? Georgia in 2017 jumped way up in SP plus from the number 21 team preseason to the number four. You mentioned LSU had a really big jump. It only took them from number four to number two, but it really closed the gap. So teams can definitely make movements up, movements down. But largely speaking, at the beginning of the year, we know who the contenders are. And there might be an outlier that moves around by the end of the year, but we know who the contenders are. And by the end of the year, you can look at the SP plus ratings and say, okay, here's the four college football playoff teams, but let's be real. Notre Dame's not beating Alabama in the Cotton Bowl. Let's be real. Cincinnati's not upsetting anyone. Let's be real. Michigan's not upsetting anyone. And so there's a real clear tier of contenders and it's a small group. So Mike, now stepping maybe away from college football as a landscape, what does that mean for Notre Dame as we think about where we fit in this? Are we a contender today? Are we closing the gap? Do we belong in tier one? Have we ever been in tier one? Like, How do we 
contextualize this for Notre Dame and kind of where we're going as a program to be a contender? So we're definitely not in tier one, but we definitely, I think we cleanly slot into that space to where we are, we're good enough to make the college football playoff, which we have. So that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Just for some context, if you, you kind of mentioned that, I think you'd mentioned like, yeah, we're not going to beat Bama, but SP plus says that we would be about an 11 point underdog to Alabama on a neutral field. So just converting that into probability a little bit, that says that we have about a 20 to 25% chance to win a game. So it's, it's possible. It certainly is possible. You're going to lose that more often than you're going to win. But hypothetically, if we were in the college football playoff and we had two similar matchups, if you have two of those games, if you're stacking 25% on 25, you know, that could shoot about a 5% chance. So that's a huge long shot. Of course it's possible, but it's, it's really, really tough. Now looking at our last six SP plus preseason rankings, our gap has averaged about 12 points. The closest we've ever been is about six points. So that, as we mentioned, that clearly slots in to where you're firmly in that could qualify for the college football playoff range, but still not quite hitting that, that threshold to where you could actually win a college football playoff game. Now, tr- looking at the, the season end SP plus rankings, our gap versus number one has averaged about 13 points. And the closest we've ever been is about seven points, which is interesting because we said generally by year end, you actually want to be about five points to be considered a true college football playoff uh, contender in terms of getting a spot. You still need to be about four points behind to actually be a contender to actually win a game or win the college football playoff. So, yeah, I mean, overall, I think a takeaway here is that we, we're like not, we're, we're firmly, as I said at the beginning of this, we're firmly in that range to where we can get a college football playoff spot, but we haven't, even in our best years, we haven't, even in our best years, we haven't even quite gotten to that point to where, based on this data, that we could truly be considered a, a, a candidate to actually win a college football playoff game and, and win a title. I think what's also really interesting in that is how much you know about a college football team at the beginning of a year and how, you know, the results on the field definitely have variability, but the quality of that team is pretty well known. So you said it over the last six years, we've started off the year as a 12 point gap to the number one team. And on average, we've ended the year um, at, with a 13 point gap. So we haven't really moved. Now that's on average. So there's definitely some years where we maybe started at 15 and jumped up to seven or started at six and fell back to 13, right? Like there's definitely variability. Teams can improve. Injuries can happen. You know, you can have coaching situations. Like I I get it. There's movements within years. But by and large, you kind of know who you got at the start of the year. And it's the exception to the rule, not the norm to have a Joe Burrow situation of just come out and be a revelation we didn't know. Um, that's probably more true for Notre Dame this year where there could be a lot of variability in a first year starting QB like Tyler Buckner, right? That's a really big unknown variable in a way we maybe haven't had before. But what that gets you back to then is to move up or down tiers in college football. Yeah, they got to get a lot better at developing talent. So you need to raise up Tyler Buckner from just a regular starting quarterback to an elite starting quarterback. Or you need to start recruiting better. We've talked a lot about recruiting on other shows. We, we won't do a recruiting deep dive here, but by and large, Notre Dame's in a better place recruiting than we have been previously. But then what really stands out is in the last six years, if you've got one knock on Brian Kelly, um, since the 2016 four and eight season, starting in 2017, we've been darn good. We've been winning 10 games every year. We've finished in the top 15 of you know pretty much every AP poll in in that time period we've been in the top 15 of the SP plus 
pretty much every year. But we haven't improved. The gap versus us and the Bamas of the world has been the exact same over the last six years. We haven't lost ground, but we are not gaining ground, and we are starting a good one-two scores behind them. And so I think that's the biggest knock on Brian Kelly. That's the biggest thing where if I say, what does this mean for Marcus Freeman? I'm looking for him to close the gap against that number one team, against that number two team. I'll take this Ohio State game as an example. I get it. The coach needs to say there's no moral victories. A loss is a loss. As a fan and as an analyst of this sport, that's not true. There are definitely moral victories. And playing Ohio State super close on the road in prime time when they're at their peak, we need to do that more often. Like right now, we are not at a position to go and beat Ohio State and Clemson and Alabama nine times out of 10. We're just not there. We're not in a position to beat them five times out of 10. In fact, we've really been beating them like one time out of 10. So my expectation isn't we start going and winning every single one of those games. My expectation is we close the gap by being competitive every single time and then let that build on player uh, development, let that build on recruiting. And you need to take a step to get there. That's not just all of a sudden like you get to jump up and, you know, climb to the top and, and close that gap. Again, LSU did it once. It was kind of lightning in the bottle. But the Kirby Smarts of the world, the Dabos of the world, even Jimbo Fisher at Florida State, those were slow builds stepping up that ladder. If you look at what Jimbo Fisher is trying to do at Texas A&M right now, he hasn't necessarily jumped up to 11-1, and one, but he's inching up the SP Plus every year. He's closing that gap and knocking on that door and being competitive every time he plays Bama and not getting blown out in those games. That's what I'm looking for out of Marcus Freeman in this program. Kelly definitely got us into the second tier, and then we plateaued big time. Can we keep demonstrating data points like this Ohio State game that shows we're further closing that gap? Yep, I think I think you got to build slowly to it. Just in the in the modern landscape, because that elite tier is kind of in a class in and of itself. It's just if you're not in that tier, there's no way that you could just bring in someone who can flip a switch and you'll be able to compete with them immediately. You have to build recruiting classes, you have to build development, you have to build you know, all these other elements that are so important to, to, to building a culture. And that's, that's kind of what we're seeing. Like Alabama, clearly class in, in and of its own. Kirby Smart, who, as you mentioned, finally got there. Th- this did not happen overnight. They were recruiting really well for a while. It's something that he built up over years. And then they finally broke through. But three, four years ago, I don't think Georgia would have been capable. They were not, they were not capable at that time of breaking through. Dabo's another great example. And, with him, it's interesting. He he, they did catch a little bit of luck with um with their QB situation. They just had some generational QB talent that kind of came in, and they actually didn't necessarily have the same talent level as some of these other programs. That's the one way you can kind of like cheat the system a little bit is if you just have such a great talent at quarterback, you can kind of um it can kind of make up for some of those at least in the short term. But then they were also able to leverage that to boost up the recruiting classes, and now they're much they're much closer from a talent standpoint to what these top programs are. Now, I, I just one other point I want to make is you mentioned Brian Kelly. He did our SP plus, which is a good metric for how we'll actually perform against these teams. He we've generally been fairly sta- we were fairly stagnant in the last however many years of his as tenure. But I will say he did elevate compared to where we have been historically in the last 20, 30 years or so. He did actually elevate elevate our level versus what it's been. So since ninety four, we've only actually finished uh, we've never actually finished in that elite tier. So. Just forget about that. We mentioned that we're not there. May hopefully we can get there at some point. But 
if you look at some of the coaches we've had since then, Charlie Weiss and Tyrone Willingham, they averaged about a 22-point gap to that number one team. And that's roughly around – that would rank around 30 to 35 depending on the year. Charlie Weiss last year, he his last three years, he actually closed that gap a little bit, got it to about 17, a 17-point gap. That's about 25, top 25 in the country. Kelly, he actually – his first five years, he kind of hovered around that 17, 18-point range. He averaged around 18, 18-point 18 gap to number one. But what he did in the last five years – was he narrowed the gap to 14 points versus number one. And that's about 12th overall. And that's, and that's, that's where we've been. That's where we've been stuck at. He got us there and then we've kind of just been flatlining there. And then as you mentioned, Brett, really the only way that we're going to be able to kind of improve on that further is Freeman just bringing in just elite recruits. If we can just really elevate our recruiting classes, but that's not going to happen overnight. That's going to take years. So hopefully we have a great recruiting class this year. We stack a couple more. It's possible in three years we're looking up and we're actually finally in that range where we're within four points. Of, of the number one team. And at that point, you legitimately can have a real hope of winning a national title. Yeah. And as, as you just talk about that bridge from the Willingham and Weiss era of really not being a top 25 team, according to advanced metrics, we were really, you know, maybe a top 35 team. And then Weiss occasionally got us there. Kelly definitely got us into the top 20 and then slowly got us into the top 15. Like, like there was step change there. One of the things that I always think about is just being patient as a fan base. There are so many programs out there that will quickly fire a coach the second they go eight and four. Um, Tennessee, Texas, USC. I mean, there's a lot of big time programs that have a really quick trigger when things don't work out. And it oftentimes they don't get it right with the next guy. And then you just stay in a loop and it, you miss another recruiting cycle with a new coach and you have another wave of new assistant coaches that need to gel before player development takes off. And it's just, it's a constant revolving door. And I look back of all of the things that Jack Swarbrick has accomplished at Notre Dame, being patient with Brian Kelly when he was four and eight is up there with, we should build Swarbrick a statue. Because if we would have replaced Brian Kelly when we were four and eight, but statistically, by the way, that was still, I believe, a top 25 SB plus season despite going four and eight. So statistically, that team was doing just fine. It's just bad football luck and we weren't closing out games. I'm looking it up. We were 18th in SP plus that year when we went four and eight. Replacing a coach after going four and eight is a disaster for your program. Replacing Brian Kelly after we went 10 and 2 and finished as a top 10 team was a heck of a lot easier to go and get Marcus Freeman, keep the recruiting classes together and really just go and build on that momentum. And so I've spent a lot of time, maybe we should do a segment on this in a couple of weeks, but I spent a lot of time this offseason asking fans, um, both friends and family that they like Notre Dame football. Hey, if Marcus Freeman loses 12 games over the next four years, so averages nine and three, will you be Upset? Don't know, or like it depends, or yeah, that'd be really good. And almost everyone said I would be upset, or what do you mean that's not even possible that we would lose three games a year for the next four years? Well, it is possible because we're playing Ohio State twice, Clemson twice, Bama twice, AM twice, USC four times. Like, there's a really tough schedule coming our way. And so part of this is moving off of like wins and losses. Like, I want to win every game. I want to, you know, see Notre Dame do well in every game. But more importantly, are we closing that gap? Are we being competitive? Are we getting rid of the Michigan 2019 game? Or was it Miami 2018 game? 
or the, you know, I hate to bring up every single bad memory as a Notre Dame football fan we got blown out, but can we just not get blown out for the next four years? Or get blown out maybe once a year now and by year four we're just, we're in every game. Even if we're nine and three, even if we're ten and two, we're in every game. That is a better barometer for whether or not we're actually working towards a national title than wins and losses. Like you can have a lot of wins and losses where fluke things happen or you win a bunch of close games against Virginia Tech and you get blown out against Miami. Well, guess what? If you're getting blown out by Miami, you're not a contender, period, full stop. And so I think just using a lens of SP Plus helps bring some context to what we mean by patience, build the program, it will take time, and it's about just being more competitive than you were the day before and, and, and closing that gap. Yeah. And Brett, there are a couple other, a couple points you brought up in there I just want to highlight. So you'd mentioned the fact that Marcus Freeman is taking over from Brian Kelly after a successful season. And this is something we've talked about. We did a whole segment on this on odds of new coaches succeeding, but your odds of succeeding when you come from, you're coming off of a successful year if you're a new coach are significantly higher. And we haven't actually correlated this to, to SP plus as much, but I would imagine that if you're taking over for a team that has a much higher SP plus, your odds of being a successful coach are also going to be a lot higher because it's also like a good metric for, for program health in a lot of ways. And if you're not patient, the good thing is, is I think Swarbrick, he was patient with Kelly. That move paid off big time. But I think the hire of Freeman, to me, the biggest benefit of that is, is that it really reinforced the stability. So what it is, it helped us shore up our recruiting class. It avoided a mass exodus of transfers. We kept a lot of the infrastructure in place that you need for player development. When, like you said, Brett, when you're like Tennessee or, you know, some of these other programs that are changing their coaches all the time, what happens with that is, as you mentioned, the player development takes a hit because there are new coaches constantly coming in and out. You tend to have more transfers. Your recruiting classes take a hit. So it's really hard to kind of continually compound those successful years on top of each other. And that's really the only way that you're going to be able to build up to that elite, elite level where you can compete for a national title. So we'll see how Freeman does. I think, you know, again, I think he's, he's walking into a good situation. I think how he did in the Ohio State game bodes well. We were competitive. That's a really tough game to win. Assuming we can kind of just keep trending in the right direction and he keeps stacking these, start stacking really good recruiting classes on top of each other, I think we could be in a good position in a couple of years. All right. With that, that's a wrap for the show. Uh, Gyrish beat Golden Bears. Gyrish.